Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. The Wings of Pegasus by George Chatterton. Chapter 8, Normandy. On the 6th of June, 1944, the Great Invasion Armada began to move, and among the first formations to go were three bomber-glider combinations at Tarrant Rushton, which included the crews of gliders 27, 28 and 28A, who were to crash land on the Mareville Battery. Weather conditions were very poor, and glider number 28A broke a tow rope over the seacoast and had to land in England. The other two aircraft combinations weaved in and out of the clouds and rain, the glider pilots having considerable trouble in keeping on tow. However, as they cleared the English coast, the weather seemed to improve and they crossed the channel. The combination, which included Glider 27, piloted by Staff Sergeant Kerr, had to make a 360-degree turn at Worthing in order to lose time before arriving over the French coast. When it arrived there in the pitch darkness, flak pounded up from the defences and several parachutists were badly wounded. However, the tug and glider pressed on. In glider number 28, piloted by Staff Sergeant Bone, the parachute arrestor gear came undone from the tail and streamed out behind. This stalled the entire combination, and considerable height was lost, but they released at 1,800 feet and circled the area. Now a great snag arose. The radio aid Rebecca Eureka failed. I've described before how the Eureka was to be carried by a parachutist in a sack, and he was to set up his position near the battery and call the gliders down. When the operator jumped, he had Eureka in the kit bag attached to his leg. As the Rebecca Eureka was top secret, it had a small explosive charge in it to destroy it, should there be a risk of it falling into enemy hands. Unfortunately, the plunge on the charge was out when the parachutist's kit bag hit the ground, and Eureka exploded, leaving the air crews without the hoped-for ground aid. As a result, the combination found it impossible to pick up the battery in the darkness and the smoke and circled four times round the area before releasing the gliders. Staff Sergeant Bone mistook a heavily bombed village for the battery. As he descended through the darkness and murk, he searched and searched, but could see nothing until he got down to 500 feet when he realised he was in the wrong place. It was too late then to turn away and so he landed in a field, which on the following day he found was only a quarter of a mile from the battery. Finding the battery proved easier for Staff Sergeant Kerr, but he realised that, in the darkness, he could not land in the middle of it, and to avoid touching down in the minefield, in the pit surrounding the battery, he crash-landed into a nearby orchard. He and his prisoners, however, were able to take part in the assault on the battery, which was taken. It was an extremely hazardous affair, and one of the greatest difficulties of which both crews complained was the immense cloud of dust and smoke and sleet, which made inspection of the ground impossible. 
They were unanimous in praising the Royal Air Force tug crews who flew round and round the area despite heavy flak and it was amazing that both the gliders were able to land with their loads fit and capable of taking part in the battle without prior casualties. Great credit must go to Staff Sergeants Bone, DFM and Kerr, DFM and to their second pilots, Sergeants L.G. Dean and J.M. Mickey for their courage. When these four were making their way to the rendezvous later to pick up the rest of the glider pilot regiment, they encountered two German patrols, engaged them and took a number of prisoners. Later they took part in an action against some tanks, which, with the aid of some Canadians, they defeated. Thus, through this exciting night, they fought on without casualty and finally returned to England triumphant. Six more gliders of Sea Squadron were now about to take off. Their targets were the bridges over the Orne and Con Canal. The taking of these bridges was an essential feature of the invasion plan, for, if captured intact, the Second Army would be able to swing out into the open country on the far side of their left flank. On the other hand, if they were not captured, they were a potential source of danger from counterattacks, launched across them by German armour. It was therefore imperative that the bridges should be captured intact, and held, and defended. It had been ascertained that there were two fields alongside each bridge into which the Germans had not driven their anti-invasion poles because they believed the fields too small for gliders to land in. But the information provided by our reconnaissance patrols led us to believe that it was possible to land in these fields and we hoped, therefore, that our surprise would be complete. These gliders were to carry a company of the Oxford and Buckinghamshire Light Infantry commanded by Major R.J. Howard but extra equipment had to be carried in the gliders because of the nature of the operation. This equipment in the end proved so cumbersome that it weighed £7,330, which well exceeded the safe maximum, and to help in landing it, an arrestor parachute, similar to that used for the Merville battery landings, was provided. The six combinations took off into the night, and strangely enough, the conditions were completely different from those prevailing at the first operation. In the leading glider were Staff Sergeants Woolwork and Ainsworth, M.M., as the aircraft climbed to the maximum height of 4,000 to 5,000 feet, the moonlight reflected the channel below and revealed the dark mass of the French coast as the glider pilots, through their intercoms, maintained contact with the navigator and captain of the Halifax tug. The pilots grew tense as the warning of the release point came nearer and soon the instructions for the landing were being delivered by the navigator. It was imperative that the glider crews made no mistake so they set their stopwatches to synchronise with that of the navigator of the Halifax who gave them the wind speed, course and airspeed. Tense with excitement, they warned the passengers that they were about to release, and the ribald singing and joking gave way to dead silence. Good luck, shouted the Halifax captain through the intercom, and the first glider was in free flight. Woolwick lifted the nose to lose airspeed, and then, as she slowed, turned onto course. Ainsworth kept his eyes on the small gyro compass which he had set, and also in his stopwatch, calling off the height and the airspeed as they flew down course, which was about six to seven miles long, representing about three and a half minutes flying. It was difficult to see outside or recognise any landmark, and the figures on the instruments illuminated the cockpit with an unholy blue. As they descended, however, the moonlight lit up the coast and the River Orne and the Con Canal. Silently they flew down the track, checking as they went, and soon came to the spot where, according to their briefing, they should make a great circular turn. The checkpoint was the Bois de Bavon, one of the largest woods in Normandy. It should have been straight ahead on the port bow, but it was not there, so Woolwork had to put his glider through a 90-degree turn onto the crosswind leg. As he did so, the bridges appeared below, picked out by the moonlight. Passing over them at 3,000 feet, half-flat was operated until they reached about 1,000 feet, at which height they released the arrestor parachute gear. 
braking action was immediate, and the glider steadied up to the right airspeed for landing. As he touched down, the pilot jettisoned the parachute gear and veered across towards the bridge embankment, the glider careering through the first of the barbed wire fences. As it came to rest, Woolwork and Ainsworth were thrown through the cockpit into the perimeter wire of the bridge itself, and in rapid succession there were two bumps behind them as two other gliders landed. The first of those two gliders was piloted by Staff Sergeants O.F. Bolland and P. Hobbs, DFM, who had gone through the same nerve-wracking experience of the flight down to the bridges, and the third glider was piloted by Staff Sergeants Barkaway and Boyle. All of them took part in the assault on the bridge led by Major Howard, the commanding officer of the raiding troops. Resistance there was fierce, although the enemy had been completely surprised. Indeed, the Germans were unaware that such huge craft could be used in such silence and with such accuracy. While the assault on this bridge was in progress, the next three gliders were landing for an assault on the other bridge. The leading glider was given the wrong target and landed in the darkness on a bridge crossing the River Deves. It must be said that Staff Sergeants Lawrence and Shorter carried out a remarkable piece of airmanship in safely landing in the dark at all. The crew of the next glider, Staff Sergeants Pearson and Guthrie, achieved a remarkable piece of flying. Their target was a field near the bridge surrounded by 30-foot trees, and they came over the top of those trees and landed smack in the middle of the field. Their party was able to get out and overwhelm the defenders of the bridge within a few minutes. Staff Sergeants P.A. Howard, DFM, and Back also landed, but they were about 400 yards short. Nevertheless, they were able to take part in the successful assault on the bridge. At about 0300 hours, the first elements of the 7th Parachute Battalion reinforcements arrived in time to help overwhelm the last desperately defended bridge, which was kept intact for the rest of the battle and became known as Pegasus Bridge. While these battles were being fought, 11 more gliders were carrying close support weapons for the parachutists. Their job was to land without aids so that the paratroopers could use the weapons and jeeps they carried. Crews for this operation were provided by E-Squadron, Despite the hazards of this flight, no special training had been given. The weather was not good, and all 11 crews experienced serious difficulty in keeping going behind the tugs. Again, they had to put up with a low cloud base and turbulence in the air. When they arrived at the landing zone, it was completely obscured by the dust and smoke thrown up from the vigorous bombing of a battery by the RAF. A further equipment-carrying operation was in progress, in which four horses of A Squadron and seven of E Squadron landed in the darkness. Only five out of the eleven were able to find the target, and these, hindered by the smoke, crashed into the obstruction poles. Because of the appalling conditions under which these gliders landed, some of them jammed their tail bolts and were at first unable to unload. Somehow they contrived to get the equipment out piecemeal, the pilots then fighting as infantry on the ground with great courage. Another six gliders of F Squadron attempted, again without aids, to land in fields, leaving Blakehill Farm at 22.50 hours on the 5th of June, They also encountered very bad weather, but crossed the French coast about 35 minutes past midnight. Here again, heavy bombardments had caused a great deal of smoke and low cloud drifted across their tracks. As a result, map reading was impossible, and only two reached the target, the others being dropped in wrong places. Even so, they managed to fight in the battle, as the others were doing. Then followed a much bigger operation led by Colonel Ian Murray, DSO, commander of No. 1 Glider Wing. This consisted of 68 horses carrying elements of the 6th Airborne Division, accompanied by four Hamel cars carrying heavy equipment. The 72 gliders took off early in the morning of the 6th of June. The weather over England was very rough, and all pilots had to concentrate on keeping on tow. They all experienced low cloud and heavy rain. 
As they crossed the channel, the conditions moderated and continued to improve until France was in sight. Heavy flak went up from the French coast as they crossed, but only a few of the passengers were wounded, which was extraordinary. This small armada was able to land on strips cut through the poles by parachute engineers, who had been instructed to lay out flare paths. The airstrips themselves were some 1,000 yards by 60 yards, and one strip was to be 1,000 yards by 90 yards for the Hamilcars. Soon, 47 horses and two of the four Hamilcars arrived over the target and landed, crashing into the poles where they could not get onto the strips. It was indeed an appallingly difficult landing to make because there was a crosswind, and as a result there were a number of collisions. Taken as a whole, however, it was a successful operation. Major General Gale, as commander of the 6th Airborne Division, was the chief passenger in this flight, his pilot being Major S.C. Griffith, TFC, the Test Cricketer, who acted as Colonel Murray's second-in-command and formed a defensive position around the headquarters of the 6th Airborne Division. They were soon engaged with enemy patrols and snipers, while the 6th Airborne troops unloaded themselves and their jeeps and guns and prepared for the battle, during which the glider pilots fought in every capacity and showed immense initiative in getting to the rendezvous from widely scattered areas. Not a single glider pilot failed to take part in some action or another, either as gunners, jeep drivers or infantry. I've already referred to the calmness with which the glider pilots met near disaster in their training days, and the same attitude was apparent even in the most horrifying circumstances when in action. It needed to be seen to be believed, but their own accounts, written after the events, give just an inkling of their imperturbability. The following are three such accounts. The first taken by a pilot who landed among the poles. There was nothing unusual in the takeoff. I flew long enough to assure myself that the plane had been correctly loaded, then handed over to Paddy while I had a look at our passengers. They looked rather stern and were very young. Just the two of them, with their two jeeps fully loaded with special wireless equipment and medical supplies, together with the personal kit of Brigadier Hill. I remember that the night before he had asked me to be particularly careful with the contents. Dusk was giving place to darkness as we droned over Oxford and towards the coast. I estimated that we were approaching the channel and checked with the tug crew, more for company and to test my intercom than with any real interest. The air seemed very still, and the horizon was so well defined that at one stage I had to take over from Paddy, not because it was my turn, but to satisfy myself we were in the right position behind the tug. This was just about the time we crossed the coast. Then continuing with our normal drill of 20 minutes each at the controls, which seemed quite long enough with a fully loaded horser, we droned on. Later, the tug pilot told us we were getting close, and almost at once we spotted another horser a few hundred feet above us. It puzzled us for the moment, as it seemed to be flying across our own course, and we concluded it must have been one of the four gliders from Harwell going to the same landing zone. Then we ran into what we thought was mist, and that put all further calculation out of our mind. We soon realised it was smoke from the bombing of a coastal gun battery, after the Lancasters had finished with it, which was to be the target of yet another glider and parachutist attack under Brigadier Hill. The smoke got thicker and demanded extreme concentration on the part of the tug pilot, Paddy and myself. We didn't fancy landing in the channel at any time, especially this night. Paddy was talking over the intercom and I tried to observe the lights on the wings of the tug. Just when everything was disappearing and I was preparing to go into the low tow position, the smoke gradually began to clear until, quite suddenly, we were in comparatively good night visibility. Almost at once the observer, speaking calmly as if ordering another beer, said, Oh, there are the two houses, bang on time too. This was very comforting and a great relief. The flak was coming up lazily but didn't seem to be interested in us until just before the tracer burnt itself out. Almost unconsciously, Paddy, who was flying now, skidded away slightly out of position. 
but he soon corrected and I concentrated on finding those lights. Our normal practice was to let Paddy fly the glider until I was quite certain of my landmarks, then I would say goodbye to the tug and take over for the landing. Between us we had calculated that at the operational height and at the time of crossing the coast, between the two houses, we should fly at approximately 90 seconds before pulling off, and then whether the lights were visible or not we should fly straight ahead and land within reach of our rendezvous. Well, the best made plans do seem to go astray. There were no lights. In a voice which sounded rather unreal, I could hear myself asking Major Joubert about it, and he in a very cheery manner replying, Don't worry, hang on, we have bags of time. I'll go round again in a second or two. Just then, over to the right, and so far as I could calculate, at the same distance from the coast as our landing zone should have been, we saw the T. It wasn't ours, but it was a chance. Joubert spoke just at that moment and pointed them out, and I asked him to fly a little to the right to give us more height in case of an emergency. Within five seconds, it was just the right spot. I said goodbye, and someone wished us good luck, and then there was the familiar jerk with the noise of the wind gradually receding to the background, the speed dropping back to a modest 80 miles per hour. Paddy had handed over the controls, and was intently watching an ak battery on our right, whose tracer seemed to be a bit too near. He drew my attention to it, and almost at once, as I put on half flap, the flak turned and seemed to have found another target. Then we saw the target, and another horse well below us, flying towards the flak. Just a second afterwards, it switched its emergency lights on and illuminated a small row of trees between ourselves and the T along which it was flying. I had to forget it then, but Paddy said later it seemed to crash into some trees, to the right of the T. Then we were coming in just right, a little bump, and then another, something like a ditch, I thought. Then a wheel seemed to stick and start to swing the glide around. I applied opposite rudder and my brake quickly, and no sooner had we straightened out than we stopped. I heaved a sigh and then immediately shot out of my seat. We were on the first light, and not in our correct positions on the extreme left of the T. Having been forewarned by a training mishap that this might happen, we'd arranged that Paddy should jump out and wave his torch to show the rear of the glider. This he did, while with feverish haste I collected our personal kit and rifles and jumped out. The two bods, whom I'd completely forgotten about, were down on the ground before me. They took up positions on either side of the glider while I went round to Paddy. We got ready to beat a hasty retreat if another glider was coming in on top of us, but there was not a sign of anything in the sky. You have, no doubt, been at an appointed place at the right time, waited for someone to arrive and had to go away in disgust. We felt like that at first. Then a feeling of loneliness came over us, even the Germans didn't greet us. Where were the independent parachutists who had put the tea out? Not a soul, not a noise, nothing. Paddy looked at me and I said, let's get the tail off. We went inside the glider and began to undo the nuts holding the tail on. We had them off within a quarter of an hour, but the tail wouldn't budge. Even when Paddy jumped on the top of it, it still wouldn't budge. We called the two drivers over and then began the oddest tug of war I've ever competed in. One horse Mark I and four tired and sweating airborne types. The glider won. And while we sat back exhausted, for a moment it sank back quite contentedly for all the world as if it was back in England. We thought of using the charge to blow the tail off, but apart from the noise, and the fact that at present we were undisturbed, the type of equipment we were carrying decided us against it. Then, just as we picked up the handsaw, we heard the sound of approaching aircraft, and right above us the air seemed full of parachutes. It was a wonderful sight, and we didn't feel lonely anymore. For the next five minutes, we were busy dodging kit bags which dangled from the feet of heavily loaded paratroopers. One even landed on the tail, but nothing happened, and when we asked for help to get the tail off, he grinned and vanished. An Albemarle, 
on our left lit up in flames brought us back to earth with a jolt. There was nothing for it but to saw the tail off. My knuckles were already sore from the exertions inside the glider and Paddy, who was as strong in the arms of anyone I knew, took first shift. We must have been sawing for 45 minutes when the driver looking out on the left gave us warning. Silhouetted against the skyline were ten armed men coming towards us. We crouched on the ground and debated whether they were Germans or paratroopers. They moved up within touching distance and then we heard them speak. They were ours. Thank goodness. The password punch and the answer duty for the night was exchanged. But would they help us with our tail? Not a bit of it. They moved on to Ronville, not a bit interested. We had already decided that the only way to get the tail off was to get more manpower. There could be nothing holding that tail on now except willpower. Then the comparative silence was disturbed by the hunting horn which we had read had been used in the African campaigns and the paratroopers went into the attack on Ronville. For 15 minutes there was a great deal of small arms fire and a house burst into flame about half a mile away. The fact that we now felt sure we were on British ground gave us confidence and we decided to make our way towards the village. We crossed the road Paddy darting across and knocking my compass out of my hand. I had already taken a bearing and we didn't need it anymore anyhow. We crossed a small orchard when in our tracks and with a very low trajectory, something which I judged to be an anti-tank gun fired twice. We decided that we had best make a detour and went back to the road. Punch came the challenge. Judy, we breathed. It turned out to be two signallers, one of whom had injured his foot in a tree, together with a Canadian major from the Royal Engineers who, screened by the hedge, was trying to pick up his bearings. He had already walked a long way, he said. It turned out he was one of Brigadier Hill's party. I told him where I thought we were, and had agreed with his guess. I then suggested that the best plan would be to make for the rendezvous we were supposed to be at by dawn, as we expected that by then Brigadier Hill would be there to set up his HQ. There were two possible routes. One towards the coast and turn right, or towards Ronville and turn left. We chose the latter, and learned later that it was the right choice. The glider hadn't been forgotten, and together our party of seven made our way towards the glider again. It was still standing, in glorious dignity. Then the Major went up to it and said, Is this the tail? Gave it two little pushes, and the thing fell off. Now the drivers sprang forward, adjusted the steering wheels, and we were all ready to go. Once again our attention was distracted by the drone of aircraft. This time it was Hamilcars and horses. One landed not far away, The others went over the brow of a small rise towards Ronville. We walked over to the glider pilots who were having no trouble in unloading. We exchanged names just in case and then went back to our jeeps. When we got back we saw a group of men inspecting them. They turned out to be Captain Dodwell, without his second pilot, who had injured an ankle, in company with Taffy Lovett, whose own second pilot, Tug Wilson, was staying with Dodwell's number two. This considerably strengthened our little party and we made for the road once again. We decided that while Taffy and I went ahead on either side of the road, the two jeeps were to follow behind, carrying the others at a safe distance. The orders to the drivers were to make for Ronville with the jeeps if we ran into any trouble, while we gave them covering fire. We soon came to the crossroads, and turning our back on Ronville, headed east. After about 15 minutes, we came to a small hamlet. Taffy stayed on the outskirts with the jeeps drawn into the hedge about 100 yards back, while I crept cautiously along the street. It was more difficult to walk quietly now and I was relieved when I came out on the road again on the other side. In a few minutes the rest of the party were through, and we continued along the road which now seemed to rise slightly. About ten minutes later, as we approached another crossroads, which could now be seen as it was beginning to get light again, a sudden burst of firing came from a light automatic immediately to our front, and a little to our left. 
We halted and then decided as there was no further noise to make for the trees. They turned out to be the entrance to the drive of the house, which was our destination, the Dawn Rendezvous. The jeeps backed cautiously into the bushes at the side and we hastily dug a few holes as a small defensive position. It was quite light now and round the bend of the drive came the middle-aged lady of the house. She showed no surprise at seeing us and said that over the road there was an injured soldier. She was taking some wine to him. The holes dug, we decided to investigate the shooting and a small patrol consisting of the Major, Paddy and myself with one of the signallers cautiously approached the crossroads. On reaching them, we decided to turn left along what appeared to be the fence of the house which had been selected as the HQ. The right-hand bank was quite high, with a hedge bordering it, and on the left a similar bank terminated in a wire fence which made it impossible to climb quickly. Through force of habit, we walked on the left at about arm's length intervals and had proceeded about 75 yards down the road when a noise resembling the low note of a cow call attracted our attention on the other side of the road. We stopped listened again. There was nothing further. Then, after another two paces, I turned round to the Major and said, I believe it's groaning. He said, maybe, challenge. I still had my head turned in the direction from which we had come when I said in a fairly normal tone, punch. A voice replied, V is das, and followed it up before we could have answered, even if we'd wanted to, with a burst of automatic fire. The bullets went up the road behind us by about ten yards, and by the time the last one had bedded itself in the bank, we were all lying full length in a ditch with a very sharp gravelly bottom, about 18 inches wide and 18 inches deep, and facing in the wrong direction. To make matters worse, our rifles were useless. Even if we could have seen where the fire came from, there didn't seem to be a target. I had a grenade in my pocket, and seeing that the Major had one arm free, I passed it back to him. He removed the pin, waited for what seemed like an eternity, and then threw it. The explosion took place where we judged the firing had come from. We waited for an answering burst, but none came, and so very gingerly turned round and began to trace our steps towards the crossroads, one at a time, only this time crawling in the ditch. My hands and knees were sore for days afterwards, and when I stood up to run the last ten yards, I fell over again with cramp. But we all got safely round the corner and back to our HQ. We felt that next time we should make a pincer movement, either from one side of the road but from the height of the bank. Having chosen another two men, but before we could start on this little war of our own, the lady of the house came back and we decided to question her as to the whereabouts of the Germans. She informed us that next door there was an HQ with about 75 Germans. That explained the sentry we must have disturbed and it rather changed our plans. The Major and one of the others went off to decide the best way to attack the house while the rest of us decided to have a brew up. Paddy started to prepare and I decided to go to the entrance of the drive and look down the road. I was observing from the corner of some bushes when along the road towards us came a party headed by two glider pilots with what looked like their passengers. They hadn't seen me yet and when they were almost opposite they sat down on the side of the bank with their backs towards me. I could have touched them but I said hello instead. Their faces were a picture of surprise. Nevertheless we now had some reinforcements and they came back into our hideout to rest. The next to arrive on the scene were the REMC, a party of about 40 strong, together with a Polish prisoner, a youngster who a moment or two later nearly died of fright when the pattern bombing of the beaches started. Even at the distance we were inland, the ground shook as though a miniature earthquake was in progress. The senior pilots now took command and decided to send us, the glider pilots, back to Ronville with a report on the position. 
There we were to rejoin the glider pilot pool of reserves which had been formed. We started out cautiously, walking parallel to the road. We passed a sentry, who only just recognised us in time, and later saw what we took to be our own paratroopers picking up supplies which had been dropped, only to find out later that they were probably Jerry's after all, as we had no troops in that position. We made our way through the village, which was looking a bit sorry for itself, and passed a badly damaged glider which had hit a stone wall. We met a couple of newspaper reporters in the street, and they directed us to the divisional HQ, which had been set up in the outhouses of a farm. The approaches were already under fire by snipers. We found that out after a near miss. Having made our report to the general, we found a small corner behind some bushes and had a really wonderful cup of tea made from provisions taken from our 48-hour ration pack. Then, much refreshed, we moved off to the glider pilot rendezvous, where there were already 20 to 30 glider pilots. The main intention was that on arrival of the main lift at 2100 hours that evening, all pilots should be taken to England as quickly as possible to get ready for another trip. Meanwhile, all we had to do was wait. We dug another hole, Paddy and I, and had some more to eat. There was spasmodic firing in the direction of Caen, and now and again patrols were sent out to contact the troops immediately on our front and flank. And so the day passed. As the time for the main force of the gliders drew near, the firing from the Germans grew louder, and the perimeter appeared to be hard-pressed. I learned later that the gliders were late, and that they arrived at a very critical time. Eventually, above the noise of the firing, we heard the approach of many aircraft, the engines became a roar, and the firing seemed to cease. Even the Germans were struck dumb by what they saw. A magnificent sight, the air full of gliders sweeping in towards the German lines, and then turning lazily and making a left-hand circuit over our slit trenches. They seemed very low, and yet not one of them appeared to be hit from the ground fire. After that perfect silence from the enemy, an absolute inferno of noise broke out. Our position, which up to that time had not come under fire, was plastered with mortars as Jerry tried to get the range of the landing zone. This forced us to keep our heads down, but we could still hear the whistle of the gliders as they continued to land. Later, after the firing had died down, I crawled cautiously to the high ground overlooking the landing zones. The area was covered with gliders, a beautiful balbo, which earned for it the name of the Milk Run. Out of curiosity, I glanced over towards my own landing position, a little to the right of the main body. I was surprised to see what I had thought to be my brake binding had in reality been the wing of the glider knocking over an anti-invasion pole. My luck must have been terrific, for the glider had touched only this one pole and had steered a course between the others without my having known that they were there. We decided to keep watch alternately during the night, not because we were in any immediate danger in our position of being taken by surprise, but because we felt that we should keep up appearances for other wandering units who, not appreciating our exertions of the night before, might take a poor view if they found us asleep. I took a Benzedrine, which is supposed to keep you awake. At least I thought so, but I was overcome with sleep in about five minutes and just had enough time to kick Paddy awake. The next thing I knew he was kicking me, and my first vision was of planes flying over and dropping parachutes. We had been warned that Jerry might try an immediate counter-attack with his own parachutists, and that managed to get through to me. For the rest of that night, I kept awake, and found out with relief just before dawn that they were our own Dakotas dropping supplies. The next morning, quite early, we had orders to prepare to march back to the beachhead. This is the second account by Staff Sergeant Leslie Foster, whose glider collided with another in the air. As we approached the French coast, we could see the vast force of ships pouring shells and rockets into the defences of the Germans. 
Smoke rose into the sky as the missiles landed, and through the haze a British plane dived down in flames. The scene was both exciting and terrifying, magnificent and yet appalling. However, I had no more time to gaze on this vivid drama, as we were almost over the coast. As I took over the controls from Tom, I searched for the church tower and other landmarks, which marked our turning and landing points. Suddenly, there it was, as clear as it had been shown in the briefing film. I called up the tug and thanked him for the ride. OK, Matchbox, the Canadian voice drawled. The best of luck. My right hand reached out and pulled the tow rope release. There was a check in the speed and we were alone over the fields of France. I put down half flap and turned slowly to port, a full 180 degrees, and there was our landing field stretched out before us. I increased a full flap and put the nose down. Everything seemed to be going extremely well when a warning shout came from Tom. Les, kite coming in from... It was too late to do anything but pull back hard on the stick as the other glider soared up under and across me. There was a terrible tearing, crashing sound and I saw the other cabin hang for a split second under me and then fall away. The speed dropped alarmingly as we overed with the nose up and I quickly brought up the flaps and pushed hard on the stick to try and get up some speed. It was obvious that my undercarriage must have gone in the crash and I realised that it would have to be a belly landing if we were fortunate enough to reach the ground in one piece. There was no sound from the men inside but the roaring of the air increased as the needle moved faster and faster. It was no use letting up. I would have no brakes, and my safest bet was to hit the ground as soon as possible and pray that the good hard French soil would halt us before we hit the trees at the far end of the field. Ninety, ninety-five, the screaming of the air past the fuselage. One hundred, a hundred and ten, full flap on, up with the nose, and we were tearing through the high French corn, the red earth pouring through the broken floor, nothing but the long straight parting of the corn, and then suddenly... The open patch before the trees, hard kick on the right rudder, would it work? And we slewed round in a great half circle, the soil spuming high in the air. As we stopped, almost touching the trees, there was a tearing sound and a very tired port wing fell to the ground. When we had extricated ourselves from the remains, we found that one of our thermos flasks was miraculously unbroken. And as we sat sipping the hot tea, we examined ourselves. A few scratches on Tom a few on me. No passenger casualties. Our luck had not deserted us this day. The third account is by Staff Sergeant A. Proctor, who was the last of a flight of horses to arrive on the pole-strewn target. After a smooth, uneventful journey, we crossed the coast of France and were mildly surprised to see a Stirling coming out with all four engines on fire. Looking ahead, the landing zone was in sight, Purple smoke flares indicating the wind direction, the ground well littered with gliders and streams of tracer curving up to the oncoming aircraft. It became increasingly apparent that it was a time to release. A glance at the altimeter showed 2,500 feet, a message witching its luck from the tug, and we were in free flight. Fate, in the shape of the marshalling officer at Bryce Norton, had decreed that we should be the last of a flight of horses to arrive over the landing zone, and in consequence we were at the end of a long queue of gliders on the approach. Perhaps for this reason, we presented the best target, and the German gunners gave us their undivided attention. Evasive action became essential, and as there was no room in the approach area, I dived away into wind with the intention of pulling out at the last moment and making a crosswind landing. The plan worked well until I pulled up about 100 feet from the ground and turned crosswind. The area I had chosen to land in was heavily studded with anti-invasion poles, and there was no alternative but to land here. In a rapid survey of the ground, I made an interesting discovery. The methodical Germans had erected the poles in a distinct pattern, and it was this that saved us. 
I manoeuvred the glider until we were flying a few feet over the poles and then ordered full flap, and as the next gap I appeared I thrust the stick forward. Both wings struck poles simultaneously, and with a great rending of wood we landed heavily, but still on a straight course, coming to a halt before reaching the next alternating roll of poles. Five trembling artillerymen emerged from the cockpit and assured us that they had never doubted our ability. It seemed kinder at the time to believe them. The second pilot, Sergeant Wright, took charge of the unloading, and while this was taking place I thought it might be prudent to see what was going on outside. It was then I heard the whine of bullets uncomfortably close and realised with some alarm that they were probably directed at me. I went to ground with speed and observed that the fire was coming from a church tower about 500 yards away. I shouted a message to this effect to the glider, to which Sergeant Wright replied, Come inside then, you silly... Saving my rude remarks until later, I asked for the Bren gun and worming my way round the glider sighted the gun and opened fire on the church tower. This silenced them. Unloading was then completed, farewells were exchanged and the Royal Artillery departed at high speed. Sergeant Wright and I took a compass bearing and set off in a direct line for our own rendezvous, coming upon another horser that in landing in the same area had struck a pole head on, killing both pilots in a horrible fashion. A few minutes later the sporadic fire, which had been bursting over the landing zone since we landed, suddenly increased with such intensity that it was literally raining shrapnel. We raced to the nearest cover and leapt in, and in the excitement I broke my braces, thereby increasing my problems. We decided that a circular approach to the rendezvous was desirable and practical, and believing that all ground to the west of the landing zone must be in our hands, we proceeded in that direction. After a mile or so cross-country, we came upon a village which seemed to be completely deserted, and making our way cautiously through, we found ourselves approaching a road junction, with myself in the lead a few paces ahead. I heard, and then saw a vehicle coming towards us, and in the half-light I could see it was a tracked vehicle, full of armed men. It's Germans, I gasped. We dropped into the ditch, armed ourselves with a grenade each and removed the pins. As the vehicle reached a point on the road opposite us, it stopped, and I was about to throw my grenade when a voice said, I say you chaps, can you tell me the name of this village? It was a Bren carrier, and the men were commandos. Concealing the grenade behind me, I stepped out and said I believed the village to be Ronville, whereupon the commando captain thanked me, and said that they were probing for elements of a panzer division believed to be in or around this village. They moved on, and we spent an anxious few minutes clutching our grenades and searching for the pins. A little farther on, we came upon the main body of the commando unit, who advised us against proceeding any further, although we suspected that they were more interested in having the extra support of our Bren gun, which they carefully sighted for us, and which we subsequently put to good use. At first light, we gathered up our traps and stole quietly away, determined to find our own unit, and about an hour later we were wearily trudging past an orchard, hopelessly lost, when a head appeared out of a slit trench and said, Where the hell have you two been? It was Lieutenant Norton of B Squadron. Never was a reprimand so happily received. We had found the squadron area. We had a horrible breakfast of compressed food. I have never tasted anything quite like these concoctions, and set up the bran again. Bob Wright was allowed two hours sleep while I stood watch. The immediate area seemed quiet, but there was a lot of activity going on elsewhere, and our main source of danger was from snipers in a nearby wood. These were eliminated by a patrol led by Squadron Sergeant Major Watts, who, failing to answer a challenge on return, almost got shot by an alert sentry. What the Sergeant Major said is not recorded. One other incident worthy of note was the part played by that grand old lady, HMS Warspite, who was lying about half a mile offshore in support. A target just ahead of our position 
was found for her and action called for, and she fired a broadside from her 16-inch guns. The noise from these shells passing overhead was frightening enough. The effect was tremendous. We were relieved at noon on the second day and ordered to return to UK, rumour having it that another op was being planned. A second major landing was also made on D-Day the 26th of June. It was by far the largest operation involving 250 gliders which carried the 6th Air Landing Brigade, consisting of some 7,000 men and their equipment and artillery. With this group was the Armoured Reconnaissance Wing, which was carried in Hamilcar gliders. The same situation arose and landing zones were cleared of obstructions by parachute engineers. The landing zone consisted of four lanes running north and south and divided between Horser and Hamilcar gliders. This was the greatest number of gliders ever flown into any battle. By now, the weather was very much changed. Only a light wind was blowing from the northeast, and the clouds were well over 2,500 feet. Indeed, apart from history being made with such a vast number of gliders being landed, the most significant point was the Hamilcar squadron. For the first time, an armoured formation was being flown into battle. The light armoured reconnaissance regiment, consisting of Tetrarch tanks and Bren gun carriers, must have had a demoralising effect on the Germans, for they had never seen anything like it before. It had been a closely guarded secret, and although these tanks were not of a heavy type, they caused the Germans some concern. It was interesting to think that this armoured reconnaissance regiment had been carried 200 miles during the morning to be landed a few hours later in the middle of France, straight onto the battlefield, where they made immediate contact with the Germans. The following brief account by Staff Sergeant T.W. Pierce gives a spotlight picture of the hazards each pilot ran in a mass landing of such a size. Crossing the coast of France on D-Day, 1,500 feet up, and according to plan, it all seemed too peaceful, rather like an exercise, even though the area had received and was receiving a plastering from the Navy. Casting off, the air was crowded with other gliders, parachutes and discarded tow ropes, and we went down steeply on full flap, turning through 180 degrees. Without warning, there came a tremendous jolting crash, and the glider was partially stalled by colliding with another glider we hadn't seen, and we had only 600 feet to gain control. Control was regained just in time to round out, but there was no time to do anything else. We landed sideways, rushing through the tall French corn to a juddering halt. My first pilot, Les, turned to me and said, Time for a cup of char, Tom. We had two flasks strapped above our heads. One was still intact, as were the pin-ups we had admired on the way over. Chopping our way out of the wreckage, we dashed over to the other glider, or rather, what was left of it. In the mid-air crash, the tail unit had been destroyed, and it had dived vertically from 600 feet. We had lost two of our own flight, for all in Z-glider had perished. We could no longer use the term, according to plan. Lieutenant Colonel Ian Murray's own report of his experiences on D-Day ran as follows. As we approached the coast, visibility improved greatly, and when over the channel we could see the outline of the immense armada that was on its way. Our route took us to the east of our objective, which was all part of the plan to mislead the Germans as to which part of the coast had been chosen for the main landing. On reaching the French coast, we turned west until we struck the waterways, which were the most prominent features to guide us. My own glider carried a full complement, including Brigadier the On Hugh Kindersley, commanding 6th Air Landing Brigade, some of his staff and the late Chester Wilmot, who subsequently wrote that great book, Struggle for Europe, who was doing a running commentary into a recording machine. Turning in from the coast, the visibility became very poor. A combination of cloud, smoke and dust caused by bombing obscured the ground completely. This may have been a godsend, as the Ak-Ak fire, although considerable, seemed very inaccurate. Nearing our objective, 
The visibility improved and soon the flares put out by the independent parachute company could be seen and gliders casting off from their tugs. We managed to make a good landing with plenty of speed so as to avoid action with the posts. In the last few yards one post tore a wingtip and one collapsed when hit head on by the cockpit. I always think this one must have been loosely placed by some patriotic Frenchman employed by the Germans. Soon after landing I found that Chester Wilmot's recorder had been smashed by a piece of shell from an Akak gun which was most unfortunate. However, he had a good picture in his mind, and his description, which was later published, gave a very clear account of events up to the time of landing. Apart from occasional rifle and machine gun fire, there was no great opposition, and we soon foregathered at the rendezvous to await the dawn. As soon as daylight came, we went down to the bridge, later known as Pegasus Bridge, to find that one glider had landed within a 100 feet of it. This was a remarkable feat on the part of the glider pilot concerned, and it had enabled the troops carried to rush the bridge and capture it before it could be blown. This was a very vital task, and the use of the bridge was a great assistance to the commandos and main body of troops in crossing over the river. It was on this bridge that General Gale waited at midday to hand over to Lord Lovett's commandos, having made a bet of a case of champagne that Lord Lovett would not be there at the appointed time. As the hour approached, there was no sign of him, but as the clock struck, a piper seemed to appear from nowhere and led Lord Lovett and his commandos to relieve us and win his bet. Things were now beginning to hot up, and mortar and shell fire became more frequent. Glider pilots were all allotted various tasks in defending divisional and brigade headquarters and other vital points. As the light was fading, the second lift came in, comprising several hundred gliders, some landing west of the Orne River and the others on the same landing zone as we had used. The Akak fire had greatly increased, and it was an alarming spectacle to see the bursts all round the gliders as they came into land. Many must have been hit and those with inflammable loads caught fire, but it was remarkable how few casualties were suffered. The second lift came under considerable mortar and shell fire during unloading operations, which caused some casualties and delayed the rapid dispersal, which is so important in an operation of this sort. From now onwards, the opposition became stronger and the whole division was hard-pressed to keep the enemy at bay until the main forces could lend support. Until word was received that the glider pilots could be withdrawn, they were used in various tasks in holding the bridgehead, and during this time fully justified the military training to which they had been subjected, in addition to their flying duties. It had always been the intention to withdraw the glider pilots as soon as possible, as further airborne operations were in prospect, and word came through on D-Day Plus 2 that we should make our way back to the beaches. This was an uneventful withdrawal, but it was heartening to see the amount of heavy equipment already landed in spite of the weather. One spectacle reminded us of the complete supremacy of the Royal Air Force. Just as we were approaching the beaches, five enemy aircraft made an attack on the landing aircraft. In next to no time, our fighters appeared, and in less than five minutes, every enemy plane had been shot down in flames. The need for air supremacy was soon evident as we saw the massive equipment piling up. A few bombs could have thrown everything into chaos. It was made in a small vessel, manned by R&R officers and men, who did everything to make us comfortable and showed their usual hospitality in every way. We received a great welcome on arrival at Fargo Camp, where many who had been unable to take part for one reason or another greeted us. Our only sorrow was for those who had not come back and for their relations and friends. Considering all things, our casualties were comparatively small, and we felt that our first operation had not been as costly as expected. And so, the second glider operation of airborne forces came to an end, the glider pilots being immediately withdrawn to the depot in England, where they were redistributed to their squadrons to await the planning of the second operation. 
On the ground, the plan for this second operation was for the 51st Highland Division to pass through the 6th Airborne Division area, link up with an armoured division and thus complete the encirclement of Caen. To forge this link, it had been decided that the 1st Airborne Division, which had just returned from North Africa, would be dropped east of Caen to provide the second arm of pincers that would completely enclose that city. For some time, there had been difficulty in moving the Germans at all, and a stalemate ensued. I flew over to Normandy and went into conference with some senior officers in that area. For some time, nobody knew quite what to do, but finally it was decided that it was imperative that the 1st Airborne Division should be dropped. I therefore flew back to England, where a very high-level conference took place, with the Air Commander-in-Chief, Allied Air Force, Air Chief Marshal Sir Trafford Lee Mallory in the chair. It was a most interesting experience, for I was by far the most junior officer there. It was thought that, at first, it might be possible for the 1st Airborne Division to be ferried over at first light, but this was finally decided to be too dangerous, and after much argument the whole thing was cancelled. Thus came the end of the first phase of the liberation of Europe. The Glider Pilot Regiment had carried out the duties required of it. 95% of the plan had succeeded, and I felt deeply satisfied with the result. Thank you for listening to my reading of Wings of Pegasus by George Chatterton. I hope you enjoyed it. If this has piqued your interest, there are six other audiobooks available to independent company members on our Patreon site, including The Ship by C.S. Forrester and Tank by Ken Tout. It's £5 a month, and on top of audiobooks read by me, you get unlimited access to exclusive content, weekly live streams, and early access to merchandise and other deals. To join, all you need to do is search patreon.com slash wehaveways. I'll be back tomorrow with the next episode of George Chatterton's Wings of Pegasus. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, US Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics US, brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. It was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? <laughs> well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration.
In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts.